0: Father, I do ask for the anointing of your spirit now and the giving and receiving of your word. We pray that none of us would miss, Lord, what you have for us today and you would make us more like Jesus because we're here today. We pray in his name, amen. Well, we've been doing this series entitled New Beginnings out of the book of Genesis and today we're going to look at the beginning of true worship. Actually, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 4. If you're following along in your Bibles, we'll also have the verses up on the screen. But Genesis chapter 4 describes the beginning of true worship. In fact, the chapter actually begins and ends with what true worship looks like. So let's first notice how it begins with the example of Abel. Remember, you have Adam and Eve, and then they have two sons, Cain and Abel. Well, Abel is going to be an example for us on what true worship looks like. Some of you might remember some of this from a year and a half to two years ago when we had our By Faith series where we looked at this from Hebrews chapter 11. Well, let's look back there in a little bit of review. Hebrews 11 verse 4, it actually describes uh, Abel as the example, first example of faith, an example of how faith worships. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 4 says, By faith, Abel... Offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts. And through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. So Abel is the first example of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, which is a whole chapter of examples of faith. He's the first example of faith, and his life teaches us how faith worships what faith looks like when it comes to worship so let's go to genesis chapter 4 and read the actual account genesis 4 verses 1 through 5 it says now the man had relations with his wife eve and she conceived and gave birth to cain and she said i've gotten a man child with the help of the lord and again she gave birth to his brother abel and Abel was a keeper of flocks, and Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. So let me just summarize some of the things that we can know from this brief story. The first thing we know is that Cain and Abel both had natures like us. They were both conceived after the fall, after the entrance of sin into the world, and they were both born outside of Eden, outside the Garden of Eden. They were both born into sin, They lived and functioned as all mankind since their time has lived and functioned. So they had the same natures and capacities and limitations and inclinations that every person since that time has had, including us. So in other words, they they had all the essentials of human nature, just like all of history, just like us. It points out Abel was a keeper of the flocks, and Cain was a tiller of the ground. So one is a shepherd, and one is a farmer. Okay, another thing we know is that both Cain and Abel were religious, like us. First of all, they had a place of worship. They apparently had some specific place. They took their offerings, their sacrifice. Some type of altar must have been built, but there was a place of worship. Also, they had a time of worship. The passage literally says, in the course of time or at the end of a certain period of time. So there was a time that they went to worship, just like us. And thirdly, they had a way to worship. They they apparently were given, given by God a way to worship. They were to give God that which they had ready access to to show their devotion to him. And so Cain was a farmer. He brought some grain. Abel was a shepherd, so he brings not just a, a lamb, but he brings the best he's got. Keep that in mind. Because when you begin to think, why is it that God accepted Abel's sacrifice, but he rejected Cain's? The only thing you can get from this passage that the passage points out is a passage carefully emphasizes Abel brought the choicest of what he had from the firstlings of his flock. So it's really emphasizing that Abel brought the best he had. But then it talks about Cain's sacrifice with no comment. The context here is extremely important. It seems that what Abel did is he, he was concerned about bringing God his very best, where Cain was content to just discharge a duty. By the way, that is the difference between one who worships by faith and one who does not. To approach God and worship by faith means that you believe that it really matters to God how he's approached. It matters to him. It matters that you give him your best. Now, if you don't approach him by faith, you approach him in unbelief, then that means you're thinking it really doesn't matter to God. So what do you do? You just go through the motions. You just discharge a duty. That's what Cain did. By the way, let's just stop right there and think, what best describes your worship so far this morning? Is it more like Abel's? Have you given God your very best since you've been here? Or has it been more like Cain's? You're thinking, ah, it doesn't really matter, and you've just been going through the motions. Well, Cain was a hypocrite. He did not want to worship God. Not really. He wasn't trying to honor God. He was, he was content by just going through the motions, kind of like, you know, coming to church just out of duty or out of habit, without any desire to please God. Anytime we do that, if you come and you, if you come to church and there's no desire to really connect and please, with God and please God and honor God, then you're just going through the motions, and that's Cain-like worship. That's not Abel-like worship. Worship. Religious duty apart from faith does not honor God. And it's not accepted by God. We see that in this passage. So Abel brings the best he has in worship because he believed that God, God was a rewarder rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. Hebrews 11.6 says this, and Without faith it is impossible to please him for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So that's what motivated Abel in his worship. He believed it mattered to God how he was approached. He believed that God was a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him, so Abel earnestly sought God. And the same is true today. God is still a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. And those who worship God with all their heart are those who find him. You know, many in churches all over the world this morning Uh, there's going to be, in in almost every church, I'll guarantee you, there's going to be some people that are worshiping like Abel and people that are worshiping like Cain. Let me explain what Cain-like worship looks like. So you're at church, and you say, okay, I'm at at the right place. Well, Cain was at the right place. Okay, I'm I'm at the right time. Well, Cain was there at the right time. That's all Cain-like worship so far. Then if, if you add to that, and I'm putting in the least effort possible... And bingo, that's Cain-like worship. Because all that's flowing from this, this mind that says, I really don't believe it matters to God what I do here. So I just go through the motions. That's Cain-like worship. Let me go on, because part of worship is giving as well, giving our tithes and offerings. So here's Cain-like worship when it comes to giving. So you hear about the tithes and offerings reminder, and you say, oh, yeah, that's right. I'm supposed to worship the Lord giving too, it got, when God set it up this way, tithes and offerings in the place of worship so his work can get done he set it up that way thousands of years ago and so but, but, but all of a sudden you're reminded by that and you get your checkbook out and you open it up and look and go okay and what's going through your mind if you're a Cain-like worshiper is how much is left over because we think in terms because Cain was given leftovers he just brought God his leftovers that's Cain-like worship or the, person, or the person looks at his checkbook, and they never even stopped to even think what a tithe is. Never even did the simple math of 10% to think what, how God set this thing up so his work could get done around the world. So, and they look in there, and they just think, okay, well, I can do this, this, and this. And that way I won't miss all these things I still want to buy and do. That's all Cain-like worship and Cain-like thinking. Or you open up your wallet, and there's a 10 and a 5 in there. And you go, okay, let's see, I can. If I give the 10, I only got 5 for lunch. But if I give it the five, I got 10 for lunch. And if that's how you're thinking, I would say to you, keep them both. Keep the 10 and the five. Because that's not going to be a worship that honors God anyway, if that's the way you're thinking. That's all Cain-like worship. Okay, another way we worship is in our service. And so let's, have, let's think about how Cain would, would serve. Cain-like worship and service would be this, this mentality. That is, people who would never be late for work, never, they would never dare offend the boss, would be willing to be late on a regular basis to teach Sunday school. See, that's the mentality, that's, that's a cane like mentality of service. And uh, things that, you, that, that you're doing for yourself, you do with all your heart. Things that you do at work, at your job, your house, your hobby, recreation, you give it all your energy, but then when it comes to serving the church, it's like, Leftover time and leftover energy. That's all Cain-like. Now I praise God that most of the people of grace are able-like in their worship, in their giving, and in their serving. But we've got to watch out that we don't slip into this Cain-like mentality. And That mentality is really a mentality of unbelief. You don't believe it matters to God. It doesn't, doesn't matter how I worship. It doesn't matter how I give, and it doesn't matter how I serve. And that's all unbelief that functions that way. And that was how Cain was functioning. He was functioning in unbelief. And by the way, if you slipped into any of that, you slipped into unbelief in your worship, your giving, your serving in any way, then God gives a warning. In fact, he warns Cain. Let's see what it is. Genesis chapter 4, verse 5 through 7, God warns Cain. Genesis chapter 4, verse 5, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. So God has actually given Cain a chance to repent here, to repent from unbelief and to turn to him but he doesn't do it. And so what happens, sin does master him and it only gets worse. And by the way, apathy is here because apathy first shows itself in unbelief. That's how apathy, you know, unbelief shows itself in apathy. So apathy is warned to repent. If it doesn't repent, God is warning that it's going to turn into rebellion. It's going to get worse. So unbelief always starts off with apathy before it goes into rebellion. You find someone who's rebellious, I guarantee you, if they one time walked with God, I guarantee you they're apathetic before they get rebellious. That's how, that, that's how, how it progresses. Apathy is not the end result. If you, you don't stay in apathy. If you're apathetic, don't think I'm just going to stay apathetic. You're not. You're on a slippery slope to, to rebellion. Rebellion is the end result, and that's what happened to Cain, Cain ends up killing his brother, Abel, and spent the rest of his days wandering away from God. He's wandering away from God. You know, I get real concerned anytime I see an apathetic person in church because I know they're headed to something worse. Apathy leads to rebellion. I've I've, I've counseled so many teenagers over the years and asked them, why did you do what you did when they did some rebellious thing? Why did you do it? I asked that question. And the answer is almost always, I just didn't care anymore. I didn't care anymore. Apathy. That's where they were. They were apathetic and it leads to rebellion. Why? Because you start out believing that God is, i start out not believing that God is a rewarder of those who seek him. That's how you start off, so you don't seek him. But it doesn't stop there. Unbelief goes further. It goes on to think that God not only is not a rewarder of those who seek him, he's not a punisher of those who rebel against him. In other words, it doesn't matter. If if your mentality already is unbelief, that it doesn't matter, you don't think it matters to God what you do, then it's easy to move into rebellion because you don't think there's any consequences for your sin because God is not even watching. So sin becomes no big deal, and you begin to walk in rebellion. So unbelief leads to apathy, but it doesn't stop there. Without repenting and apathy, it goes to rebellion. But the life of faith is quite different. Someone who really believes that God is a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him, they earnestly seek him. But it doesn't stop there. You see, a life of faith that worships does not stop at worship. What happens? We're all familiar with this concept. You know, that vacation spot that you you went to one time and you just loved it, it was great, you're quick to recommend it to other people. Or that restaurant you went to and the food was fantastic. Well, you recommend it. To other people. That which you appreciate, you recommend to others. Or that movie you saw that was really gripping and, and you know, you, just, you, you, you tend to recommend those things to your friends. That which you come to appreciate, you recommend to others. It even applies to personalities. You, you meet someone that's really special, some guy or some gal, and you say, you tell your friends, you got to meet him or you got to meet her. Why? Because you came to appreciate them, so you recommend them to other people. Now think about this for a moment. If you've really grown to appreciate God because in worship you've really drawn close to him, if you've really grown to appreciate him, wouldn't you naturally recommend God to other people? Wouldn't that flow naturally? Because that which you appreciate, you recommend to others. That, by the way, is the essence of evangelism. We recommend God to others because we have so grown to appreciate him. And the truth is that, well, some of you aren't recommending God to anybody, Could it be the reason is because you haven't really grown to appreciate him? See, once you come, when you come to really appreciate God, there will will be a natural desire to just want to recommend him to other people. Here's a mistake I think a lot of people make when it comes to evangelism. That is, they think about, I think what they need to do is learn about God and learn about a method and then get up the nerve to talk to somebody. And the mistake is this. I, I'm not likely to recommend a vacation spot I've never been to, I just know about. I'm not likely to recommend a restaurant I've never eaten at, I've just heard about it. I'm not likely to recommend a movie I've never seen, I've just heard about it. See, those, those people who's, you know, who've not really come to know God and appreciate God are not likely to recommend it to other people by just hearing about Him, knowing about Him. So, when we, well, if we seek him with all our heart and we find him and we draw near to him, as the psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Um, when you connect with God and worship, you do that on a regular basis, you're going to find yourself talking to other people about God. It's going to happen. See, Andrew Murray said about 100 years ago he said, we, when we seek to find out why, with such millions of Christians, the real army of God that is fighting the host of darkness is so small. The only answer is lack of heart. The enthusiasm of the kingdom is missing, and this is because there's so little enthusiasm for the king. So worship is where the life of faith begins, but it doesn't stop there. You'll grow to appreciate God so much, you'll have to recommend him to others. So you don't stop at worship, you'll have to witness. That's how it works. You'll recommend the Lord to others. So that's how Genesis 4 begins. It begins with an example of true worship with this model of Abel. And we talked about a lot of those things back when we did our, you know, by faith series. But I want you to notice how this chapter ends. So let's go ahead and bring us up to speed here in the middle of the chapter. We have Cain who, instead of heeding God's, heeding God's warning, actually allows himself to be mastered by sin and rebellion, and he commits the first murder. He kills his own brother, Abel. And then Cain foolishly thought he could hide his sin from God. And God, and yet we see God seeking after Cain, just like after Adam and Eve's sin, God's seeking after them. God is a seeker. Where after Cain's treacherous sin, the Lord has a dialogue with Cain, and he basically comes to Cain. And he asked him this question in this dialogue. He says, where is Abel, your brother? I mean, God knows where he's at and Cain knows where he's at. Cain knows exactly where he's at. He's where he killed him and left him. Where is Abel, your brother? Cain responds, I don't know. So he starts off lying, and then to make matters worse, Cain goes on to utter this infamous old adage, am I my brother's keeper? Wow. What an attitude. Then God says, what have you done? Genesis 4.10. What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. You know, sin can be hidden from other people, but we can never hide our sin from God. You know, secret sin on earth is like open scandal in heaven. I mean, there's no secret. So as a consequence of Cain's act of deliberate sin, God curses him. He curses him in verse 11 and 12. Just like he cursed a serpent, like he cursed the ground, he curses Cain. Let's read it. Genesis 4, 11 and 12. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. By the way, this is the first time in Scripture that a human being is cursed. Genesis 4, 13 and 14. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is too great. By the way. I'm going to read this passage slower, and I want you to see if you can count how many personal pronouns are in these two verses, because Cain's focus is all about himself. Even here, caught in his sin and judged and cursed by God, there's still no repentance here. Listen to this. Genesis 4:13 4, and 14, Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me, will want, will, he will want to kill me. So Cain's complaint is peppered with six personal pronouns. Why? Because all Cain cares about is himself. There's no fear or reverence for God here. No regret of the loss of innocent life. No regret. There's no sorrow for sin. There's no thought of his parents who he lost one son tragically through this murder, now they're losing another son through the fact that he's going to be, you know, rebelling and and leaving the area. There's only preoccupation with himself. The killer fears being killed. I mean, he turned on one of his relatives, now he's got to watch out that one of his relatives don't turn on him. And so in Genesis 4.15, the Lord says this to Cain. Again, see the mercy in this from God. God is still being merciful. Genesis 4, 15. Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain so that no one finding him would slay him. So God continues to demonstrate his mercy and compassion even to Cain. By the way, the Lord's program is always mercy before judgment. That's always God's plan. Aren't you glad? No matter what you've done, And I I say this today because I believe there's, uh, I want to emphasize there's there's some here today that you need to hear this, or watching live stream, you need to hear this. No matter what you've done, God wants a relationship with you. God wants it. There's no sin that you've committed that's too big for God to forgive. He will accept us if we just, just repent and turn to him and trust in his sacrifice that Jesus did on the cross for our sins, and he gladly forgives us. Now, in his mercy, he does some type of mark on Cain. Now, all kinds of, of uh, speculation has, has, you know, fills, uh, if you want to Google some interesting things, all kinds of ideas of what the sign could be, like how, Cain, how God marked Cain and then expels him. But there was, there was some mark in him that was protecting him from retaliation. That's the idea. Here again, we see God's mercy. Verse 16, Genesis 4. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is such a sad verse. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. There he goes. Settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Verse 17. Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. And he, Cain, built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. So the question always is, where, where did Cain get his wife? The answer is quite simple. Cain married one of his sisters. Or possibly a niece, depending on, uh, on how the timing worked out in all this. I remember, the, the Bible says that Adam had other sons and daughters in Genesis chapter 5, verse 4. In fact, since Adam lived 930 years, he had plenty of time for lots of children. Lots of children. Cain could have married one of his sisters or a niece if one of his brothers you know, got married before him and, and had daughters before he was married. So that could easily happen. Regardless, you know, marriages of close relatives would have been unavoidable at first when you're starting with one couple, right? And so the whole human race comes from one couple that had to be married within relatives. But marriage between siblings and close relatives wasn't prohibited until the Mosaic Law thousands of years later, in Leviticus 18. And by the way, there were no genetic imperfections in it in the first man and woman. So God created genetically perfect Adam and Eve. And genetic defects resulted from the fall and only occurred gradually over a long period of time. Okay, now we get to Genesis chapter 4, verse 20. 24. And we see that Cain. Now goes out and Cain actually founds, builds cities. I mean, he really is the beginner of civilization as we know it. I mean, Cain is, does all amazing things. He produces cities, music, weapons, agricultural implements, and short civilization. And so, again, even among ungodly people, God allows there to be development and progress. Again, it's part of his kindness to the entire human race. Again, this is another indication of God's mercy. But now I'll get to the passage I want us to really focus on. I want you to see a huge contrast now. A contrast between the line of Cain, which is a line of self-reliance and godlessness. As even as they're building this tremendous civilization. And another line as we're about to see from Seth through his son Enosh, which is going to be a godly line. In fact, let's read this verse. Genesis 4, 25 and 26. Adam had relations with his wife again. She gave birth to a son and named him Seth. By the way, the word Seth actually means new beginnings. She named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth... To him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Listen to this now. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And by the way, in your Bible, Lord should be all capitals, L, capital O, capital R, capital D, because it's the name of Yahweh God. Then men began to call upon the name of Yahweh God. A phrase called upon the name of the Lord is the beginning of corporate worship and prayer to Yahweh God. We have an example of true worship in one man, Abel, and then we get to Enosh, and now we see this corporate worship beginning to happen. But I want you to notice the contrast. The Cain's descendants, who really have devalued life, Cain is a murderer, but but even beyond that, I don't have time to look at Lamech in this passage. But we see it there was no value of life as they were building cities and music and all kinds of implements, the good life, basically. And then the descendants of Seth, there's a contrast. And they're primary, they're primarily promoting prayer and worship of Yahweh God. So Seth fathered Enosh, and then this new beginning occurs. Men begin to call upon the name of the Lord. It's interesting to me, I started kind of doing the math with all the genealogies, and you can check me on it if you like. But my math comes out that Enosh, Enosh, the son of Seth, who, when men began to call upon the name of the Lord, Enosh was alive when Noah was born. In fact, Enosh lived for 84 years after Noah was born. You kind of wonder if he didn't have an impact on Noah as well. So, Cain's firstborn and successors pioneer civilization, but primarily a life independent of God. While Seth's firstborn and successors pioneer worship and prayer, lives dependent upon God. So, you got these two lines. So, which of these two lines would you think best describes your life right now? A life independent of God, but yet you're enjoying civilization and the good life, or a life that's primarily marked by prayer and worship? Well, those of you who say, well, I, you know, I, I want my life to be marked by, out of this good line, I want to, be, I want to be, really have a life of prayer and worship to the Lord God. I want to just give a few practical steps before we close here. Now, recently we had a series on the devotional life, and a lot of you got really you know, involved in a regular time with the Lord and devotional life, and some of you might have slipped on that a little bit, but I'm calling you back to it. I mean, make that, don't ever, don't ever grow out of that. You never graduate out of your devotional life. Never graduate out of meeting with God on a daily basis. We need it. Let me give you just a couple reminders here. Some of these things we talked about before. Number one, schedule a time to worship and pray on a daily basis. Even if it's 15 or 20 minutes, you know, some of you might take an hour, but have a time where you're going to, on a daily basis, where you're connecting with God. Because if you don't schedule it, you're not going to do it. It's an it's, it's unusual person that does it without scheduling it. Second thing, just practical thing I mentioned is, And then deny yourself and come after Jesus during that time. Deny yourself. Come after him. Jesus never says, deny yourself and go after ministry. That's how you burn out. We deny ourselves and we go after him and then we connect with him. He's divine. We're the branches. And in that relationship, we have ministry. That's how it's supposed to work. And so schedule a time. You're going to do it. Some of you right now think of a time. You already have a time. If you don't, have, think of when it would be. And then deny yourself and stick to the time. And meet with him. Connect with him. Connect with him with an open Bible and a heart of worship and prayer. And thirdly, seek the Lord with all your heart when you have your time. Seek him with all your heart and you find him. Jeremiah twenty-nine thirteen, And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. With all your heart. There is no promise you'll find the Lord by seeking him half-heartedly. So there needs to be some desperation in our pursuit. We must do it with all of our heart. Pursue with all your heart. Get get past all the distractions, all the stuff weighing on your mind, and all your preoccupations, and deal with that bad attitude, and confess that sin, and get there. Find him. Do that when you come on Sundays. Do that in your small groups and in G-hop, and do that on your own time when you're meeting with him. But, but, But seek him until you find him. Let me say something about seeking him with all our heart. Matthew 15, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is talking about this, verse 8 and 9. He says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me. So it's empty. It's futile worship. In vain they worship me. Why is it in vain? Why is it good for nothing? It's good for nothing because their heart's not in it. That's why it's good for nothing. Worship throughout biblical history has always involved some kind of action. The main word for worship in the biblical Hebrew is to bow down. That's the main word used in biblical Hebrew, bow down. But also there's a lot of other words in Hebrew used for talking about our action in worship. Lifting of hands is used many times in the Old Testament. Kneeling, praying, singing, dancing, reciting scripture. All this can be called worship. But all that I just described can be done with your heart far from God. And so all that without your heart connected is not worship to God. I mean, we all know what it's like to honor somebody when our heart's far from it. Some of you might have, in your your company, in your business, you might have had someone retire who is very, very well liked. And at the retirement party, I mean, the speeches given, you know, the handshakes, the gold watch, everything was so sincere because everyone loved this guy. So everything was done from the heart. But then three years later, Grumpy retired. <laughs> what happened at Grumpy's retirement? There were still speeches. There were still handshakes, there were still the go watch, but the heart wasn't in it. It was all lip service. We all know what it's like to, to have our heart connected in something. And all those, those of you who've had small children know what it's like to go to a recital or a school you know, play of some sort, a talent show. We all know what it's like when there is applause that is from internal appreciation, like "Whoa, ho, ho, that was good." And we also know what it's like to have applause that's external, you know, expectation. Wow, glad that's over. <laughs> you don't say it, but you thought it. See, to do something from your heart, you know, it, it's, it's, it's your heart's got to be involved for it to be worship. So in worship. Our feelings for God have got to come alive. That's why the psalmist is saying, bless the Lord, oh, my soul. He's trying to get his feelings connected, his heart and soul connected. Bless the Lord, oh, my soul. Come on, we got to get there. we got to get there. And so how do we do that? How do we make sure that we're worshiping with all of our hearts? How do we get our heart involved in worship and be genuine about it? Well, I want to just, I could talk about a number of things the psalmist says, but I want to talk about what Paul says, the Apostle Paul, in Ephesians 1, 17 and 18, and we'll close with this. Ephesians 1, 17 and 18, Paul prays this for the Ephesian believers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. The eyes of your heart might be enlightened. He's not talking about just your imagination here, dreaming up something. He's talking about seeing something with the eyes of your heart. What is he talking about seeing? I believe he's talking about seeing into this heavenly throne room. In Revelation 4 and 5, Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1, Daniel 7. Go ahead and put those passages up on the screen. Because you guys, I want to give you an assignment in a moment. But we actually, these four prophets are are given an an opportunity to see into a throne room scene that is really happening. It's, It's happening. And in this throne room, you've got, you know, millions of angels. You've got different ranked angels. You've got living creatures. You've got this amazing worship going on. And God is exalted on this throne. And you've got this scene that is painted for us. And I think what we need to be able to see to get our hearts connected, I'll just tell you what I do. That's what I do. I want to get into that throne room scene when I worship and pray. I, my goal is to get in there. So I've, I've almost memorized these four passages. I've meditated on them so much that I kind of arranged the throne room scene because you know in my mind and heart, and then my goal is to go into that scene and to pray to that glorified, exalted, majestic, splendorous God. And when I can get in there and I can, with the eyes of my heart, see that scene, then all of a sudden I, my, my affection is being kindled. My devotion is being put on fire and my passion is rising and I'm connecting with him and tasting that he's good. And that, that changes everything. Because then out of that flows the ability to say, to w- want to love other people and want to serve other people. Then your life flows out of that. That's why Jesus said he's a vine with the branches. Apart from him, we can do nothing. We connect with him relationally. And so here's the assignment I want to give you guys this week is to read these passages, these chapters. Find the throne room scene and begin to just meditate on that scene. And then when you pray and worship, go into that scene. This, we're not talking about visualization and imagination. We're talking about the eyes of your heart seeing this reality that has been revealed to us in the scriptures. It is really happening, but to get there. And I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. If you've never done this and you really get there and you get into that throne room scene and you start worshiping him, you're going to think, wow. I mean, this has been available all this time and I hadn't been doing it? And then you'll just, if you, and when you start to connect with God like that, you're going to be ruined for normal life. And you're going to want to get closer and closer to him, and then you're going to want to, uh, you know, recommend him to others. And you're going to find yourself talking freely to others about God and impacting their life. And so that's what true worship looks like. We see it in the beginning of Genesis 4 in the the example of Abel. Give God your best. Seek him with all your heart. Don't go through the motions. Don't do that. Don't ever just, don't waste time, because that's not even worship. And then we see corporate worship at the end where men begin to call upon the name of the Lord. We see a, a line of people that are noted for their worship and prayer. Let's be those people. Amen? Amen. I mean, Let's stand for prayer. Those of you that are new, have any, any questions for our staff, we'll have a new, new, uh, Newcomers Connection Coffee here in this far corner. If this is your first Sunday here, we have a welcome area here. I'd love to meet you down here before you take off and get your kids, so please do that. And also, we're going to have some leader couples down front that will be glad to pray for you before you leave if you need prayer. Let's pray. Father, first of all, just forgive us for all the times that we, that any of us, all of us at different times have been more like Cain in our worship, our giving, and our service. Forgive us, Lord. Lord, we don't, we don't want to be that way anymore. We pray, Lord, give us a heart to be like, like we see uh, Seth. Lord, we see Abel. We see Enosh. Give us that kind of heart, Lord, that we want to give you our very best now. And we'll be seekers of God with all our heart. And so, Lord, I pray that you just be easy to find as we seek you this week, and we seek you all our heart, and, Lord, we can connect with you, and, and you would just fill us to overflowing, and then we'd impact the people we walk around and live around this week. We pray all this in Jesus' name. And Everybody says amen. amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day and a great week.